Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. This weekend, President Joe Biden is headed to Europe. His first stop, the UK. Biden is scheduled to meet with both His Royal Highness King Charles, an old acquaintance and fellow head of state, and the Right Honorable Rishi Sunak, Britain's prime minister and a fellow head of government, who just visited Biden in Washington this past month. On the agenda for these meetings, climate change, the war in Ukraine, and the transatlantic declaration. That's the diplomatic term for Biden and Sunak's push to renew Britain and America's partnership across a host of economic and security issues facing the West. So we could think of no one better here in Washington to discuss the U.S. and the U.K.'s special relationship, the war in Ukraine, and the implications for this very weighty moment in diplomatic history than Karen Pierce, the British ambassador to the United States. I'm Ryan Lizza. This is Playbook Deep Dive. When it comes to diplomatic service in the UK, the ambassadorship to the US is the pinnacle of achievement. Before she arrived in Washington, Pierce held an array of senior positions, including ambassadorships to the UN, the WTO, and Afghanistan. She also directed British policy throughout South Asia, Pakistan, and Afghanistan during some key years of the war on terror. But Pierce is no stranger to this town, She served here early in her career, and now, in her second posting, she has used her insider's knowledge of Washington and its players to ascend to the top of a lesser-known hierarchy. She is the diplomatic corps' top socialite, well-known as much for her shrewd insights about the peculiarities of Russian diplomats as she is for hosting soirees for Washington's elite. And as you'll hear, Pierce, like many in her profession, views her ability to pack a room with powerful people as a critical part of her job, gathering insights and intelligence about what's really going on in Washington to report back to London. I caught up with Pierce this week as she was packing her bags for a trip home, where she'll be staffing both King Charles and Rishi Sunak at their big meetings with President Biden. We talked about what Sunak hopes to get out of Biden's trip to London, Britain and America's changing relationship throughout Pierce's many years of service, how the war in Ukraine is driving the two countries closer and occasionally further apart, who Brits admire the most in our nation's history, and her secret to dealing with those cagey Russian diplomats. I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and both a little bit about your experience with Russian diplomats. And, and, and I know you've talked about that before, and you've, you've had quite a bit of experience. But also, first, with the UK view of the war and the, and the US view, every once in a while, there crops up an issue, an ask, usually uh, from Zelensky. And every European country or European countries have some nuanced views on whether that ask should be satisfied uh, or not. Um, F-16s, disagreement over F-16s seems to, to be the latest. But I, I'm just, I'll ask you generally if you could sort of 
explain the nuances and in, in, in similarities and differences between the US and UK right now with respect to the Ukraine situation? I, I don't think there are that many differences, to, to be honest. I think we've got a very strong identity of view and purpose uh, with the United States. I think if you think that NATO is an alliance of 31 countries and hopefully seem to be 32 uh, with Sweden. I don't think it's surprising that there might be nuances, but, uh, you know, even with 31, 32 members, there's a very strong identity of view on support for Ukraine and helping Ukraine reclaim its territory, defend its its territory. Uh, there are sometimes differences of view as to whether the military equipment they're asking for would right. be the right military equipment for the task in hand. But there's the mechanism uh, that Secretary Austin set up to resolve that uh, at Ramstein and for allies and partners, you know, includes Australia and New Zealand, to come along and see what is possible uh, to offer and how best that might be de deployed in Ukraine. So there's a very good process now for working out uh, what capabilities are needed. You know, the war changes on the ground. The Russians introduce new attacks. Different capabilities are needed at different points. I think on the, the F-16s, I think I'm right in saying that everybody has now agreed that some allies will supply uh, F-16s to Ukraine. And um, the Brits, we do not actually have any F-16s, so we won't be supplying them. But we are doing pilot training. And the idea would be that you get your basic pilot training if you're Ukrainian uh, in the UK, and then you would train on uh, the planes that are actually going there, i.e. the F-16s. I saw in an interview you did recently, you said something like you were talking about your experience working with Russian uh, diplomats. Oh, at the UN, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you said something really interesting, and correct me if I've got this wrong, but that you need to address not just the things that the Russian, not just their stated demands, but their unstated demands, what they really want as well, which I found fascinating. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, because it seems like having that skill at this moment in time is quite relevant. I think, to be honest, it's a skill in negotiation that you need with almost anybody. Uh, but I think particularly with reference to the Russians, and I'm not a Russia specialist, so if any of your audience are Russia specialists, they're probably writing furious letters to you uh, at this point. I, I would say that the Russians often feel they, they're fantastically good diplomats, I should start by saying, and they're incredibly good at throwing up smoke screens, chaff at you with issues that aren't important. But mm -hmm. understanding which issue really is important to them or which aspect of an issue is important to them and when they're not being theatrical but they really mean it, I have found that with Russians in particular as opposed to other countries, that last point in particular is very important, knowing when it's not just a diplomatic trick. They're very convincing, but knowing what's real for them and what's a diplomatic trick and knowing when to call out the diplomatic trick, but respond reasonably to the what's real. I have found in my own dealings that that has made a difference. That's really, really interesting. Are there any, I know it's, you know, it's sort of sensitive to talk about, but is there anything in the current situation where you can apply that uh, that that test? I mean, what you know, in in terms of where most of the West 
wants this crisis to land, and I, and I think privately there's a sort of consensus, close to a consensus about about that. Is there anything with the with, with respect to the current Russian positions where you can apply that technique and say, all right, this is mostly bullshit what they're what they're saying here. But you know, when we get when we finally get to the negotiating table, if we do, what really the real focus has to be X. I could say that in the past, I have found you could do that on the Balkans, say, uh, and on Afghanistan. But I'm really sorry to say this. I think even since I, even when I was in the UN three years ago, you had the poisonings on the streets of Salisbury, uh, an English city. That that's gangster type behaviour, and it's coming from the the state because only the state uh, could have produced uh, that particular poison, Novichoks. Uh, and then with what you see with Ukraine, uh, again, these are this is not the behaviour of a responsible uh, member of the security. Council, a P5 member that has a certain response, permanent member, because you have nuclear weapons, because you have the veto at the UN. There's a certain burden, a certain responsibility that goes with all that. And personally, I, I, I a little bit shocking to see the Russians behave in this way. But I did also want to say that if the Russians had genuine security concerns about Europe, Europe is the most overly lawyered place in the world for arms control and political agreements. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the Helsinki Final Act, uh, the Human Rights Agreement. Uh, you have the OSCE. You have the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty. You have all the nuclear treaties. You have the NATO-Russia Council. You, you have all these mechanisms where the Russians could have come and said, we perceive a genuine threat to us. Right. And all those concerns could have been addressed. But they didn't do that. They just marched into Ukraine. That, that I think, is, is almost unfathomable. And then now you've heard Prigozhin, uh, the leader of Wagner, say that there was no reason uh, to invade Ukraine. Now, we know that, and the Americans know that. But here you have someone who used to be one of Putin's closest allies uh, saying that. So what that eventually means, I, I don't know, but I just think it points up the hollowness uh, of all the Russian cries about their security being under threat. Um, NATO has never been a threat to Russia. NATO has never attempted uh, to attack Russia or, or Russian interests. It's a defensive uh, alliance, which is why... Uh, Sweden and Finland want to join it. So, Ambassador, tell us about President Biden's trip to the UK and what you're hoping the UK side gets out of this and what your understanding is about what the Americans want to get out of this trip. So His Majesty the King is really looking forward to welcoming the president to the UK uh, next week. And the uh, original hook, if you like, uh, <laughs> was, the, was the King's invitation uh, when they spoke on the phone uh, earlier this year, uh, and it will be the first time uh, the president and the king have met since the king became king, uh, but of course they know each other really well. Uh, they've known each other. They do, really? Oh, like, no, really they, well. They've been in touch with each other over the years, uh, mainly uh, about climate change and how to tackle that, uh, but of course before the king 
was was king um, when he was the Prince of Wales. Uh, he saw the president at the G7 uh, in Cornwall, uh, and then again at the Glasgow uh, COP26. Uh, so they've seen each other reasonably recently, but this will be an opportunity uh, for, the, for them to explore together other aspects of how best to tackle climate change. Uh, and then we hope the president will also uh, speak to the prime minister uh, to follow up on the Atlantic Declaration. Uh, this is the declaration that the president and, and prime minister Rishi Sunak uh, published when uh, Sunak was here on the 8th of June. Uh, he and the president talked a lot about economic security, uh, a lot about how we can work even more in partnership uh, on economic security, on supply chain, resilience, uh, and on AI. So they'll want to follow up that aspect. I want to ask you one question about the, the Biden-King Charles relationship, because that's so interesting and, and so new. And it's also one of the first opportunities for the, the, the world to get a sense of what kind of portfolio and what kind of uh, King Charles might have that differs from his mother. Is there anything, any light you can shed on that? So when King Charles visits with a head of state like President Biden, how is it different than a similar meeting would have gone with the Queen? Well, I think in many ways, there's two heads of state talking to each other. So there are certain things that go with that. And in some ways, there'll be a lot of continuity. But I think what makes it a little bit different is the very deep interest that King Charles has in the environment and in tackling climate change. Uh, I think the king will also, uh, picking up the president's theme of climate inequity uh, and inequity in society generally, uh, the king has done a lot of work uh, with disadvantaged youth. He's done a lot of work uh, with communities. Uh, and he does a lot of work for apprenticeships. And I think that'll come up in conversation as well. Um, let's talk about Biden and, uh, and the prime minister. They met uh, only recently. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that I think is a little bit different in this era of, of politics, both in the UK and the United States, is the... Um, more often than in the old days, the right in the UK has uh, sort of negative views of liberal uh, pol uh, liberal presidents uh, and, and, and vice versa. In other words, the partisan divides in our two countries, because there's so much uh, media that, that, that is shared, you know, you, you see um, partisans on both sides developing similar views of the right and left in the UK and the US. And I think it's partly a function of the countries being so close and people who are interested in politics in the US are interested in politics in, in the UK and the, the dividing lines on some big issues are, are the same. How is, um, how is Biden seen... Um, I'm going to ask you this question. I sort of have my own view of it. How is Biden seen in the in the conservative press in the UK? Is it similar to the way he's seen on Fox News and uh, among our our uh, politicians on the right? Um, I'm not so sure. I wholly uh, agree with your premise. To be yeah. absolutely honest, uh, I do think it a mistake to think that Labour and Dem the Democratic Party match up, right? And the Republicans and the Conservative Party matchup. You know, there are many examples in, in history of a president being from one party and a prime minister being from the so-called opposite party, and yet they still form these, these great relationships. Bush uh, and Tony Blair, a famous example. Indeed, or even... Yeah. For better or worse. <laughs> um, I don't know, this for good. But even um, 
FDR and, and Churchill were not uh, originally uh, from, the, from the same party. Uh, JFK uh, and Macmillan, uh, you know, that's where the uh, nuclear relationship was particularly uh, cemented. So, um, mm -hmm. as I say, there's a, there's a slightly different historical perspective. And I think the press in Britain, with a few exceptions, but very few, is overwhelmingly supportive of the special relationship and indeed right. really like that phrase. Um, you can use other phrases. You can call it a deep, profound, intimate, successful relationship. But fundamentally, the media and the British people are overwhelmingly supportive of the U.S., and the U.S.'s role in the world. If anything, uh, the U.S. you know the British people uh, like seeing the U.S. on the world stage. That's uh, they like the U.S. to be a beacon of democracy. They see the British role uh, as very much problem solving and burden sharing, and standing with the U.S. in shared endeavors in war and peace. Uh, in forging common frameworks for new problems. Uh, we might think of emerging tech and artificial intelligence uh, in that category. In terms of deepening trade and investment, uh, something like a trillion dollars flows across uh, the Atlantic. 1.2 million Americans go to work for British companies in the US and a similar number vice vice versa. Uh, and you have the people to people links, which I think have changed a bit because of changing demographics in both countries, uh, but are nevertheless uh, pretty strong. You're always going to find a couple of writers in almost any newspaper who want to be disobliging uh, <laughs> for political reasons, but they don't represent the vast majority of the media or the British people. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The special relationship between our two countries goes through ups and downs, of course, and there are always issues uh, to be to be worked out. In the in the long sweep of the special relationship, if you had to put a number on it, say, you know, ten is maximum specialness, <laughs> and one is really close to not being special at all right now. Where is the relationship right now? No, no, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to play that game. <laughs> what I will say... Closer to 10 or closer to 1? It's always it's always um, right up there. Oh, diplomats are very hard to interview. But, um, <laughs> what I will say is that the, the bedrock of, of what keeps us together, yeah. uh, what keeps the cooperation going at all levels of public life and public policy, if you like, that's so strong. That's a bedrock. It's so strong that it is very unusual that any one issue can disrupt the relationship. Right. Uh, what you tend right. to get, as, as you'd expect, you know, you can get disagreements on air services. Uh, you can get um, disagreements on how to approach a third country. You can get 
disagreements on almost anything, but they always get worked through. Uh, and we always carry on talking and try and find uh, how can we resolve something uh, that isn't to the grave detriment of the other. It doesn't disrupt the relationship. What are the issues right now? What are the ones that need need to be uh, worked on at, at the moment? What are the ones on, on each side that um, are at the at the top of the list? Um, well, I'm sorry to be boring, but I don't think we have very many disagreements at the moment. You know, I'm sure something will come along uh, presently that will be a public policy issue. But if I can give you a comparison to try and illustrate uh, what I'm talking about, if you think back to the 1990s uh, and the Bosnia War, when war first erupted uh, in Bosnia, that was a very difficult issue uh, for Europe versus uh, um, America. Yeah. And you were a diplomat in the region at the time. Uh, I wasn't actually in the region, but you're right. I did. I did work on it from from London. Okay, excuse me. No, no. You um, you you had British and French troops on the ground, but really, really terrible things were happening in Bosnia, and the US was extremely critical. Uh, in the end, that all got resolved uh, with the Dayton Agreement, which was led by. Uh, Richard Holbrook and Carl Bildt from Sweden. Uh, and in the end, in 95, NATO troops went in. And those disagreements between the Europeans and the Americans uh, dissipated. But that was a very difficult time. Uh, we haven't got anything uh, like that at the moment. There's yeah. there's not really anything that would interest uh, many of your listeners. <laughs> to really well, about there's a, I, I mean, there's a little bit of turbulence around some of the um, I guess we would call it Bidenomics now, right? There's a big industrial policy push in the United States right now, a big made in America push. And some of the, you know, previous uh, free trade ideas are, are being questioned here and, you know, uh, and, and other places. How, how much of a how much of a naughty issue is that that the prime minister and president need, need 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 to discuss? Is America being a little bit more protectionist than it used to be? Um, I think both the president and prime minister would share a very deep desire to get inflation down, get the cost of living down, uh, get things back on track after the pandemic and the effects of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, it's no surprise that a conservative government on the one hand and a democratic administration on the other might have slightly different ideas about how to go about that uh, economically, but they're not sources of disagreement. In fact, we very much agreed with the speech that Jake Sullivan gave recently about the need for a new sort of economic partnership uh, covering things like supply chains. And that was one of the reasons why the prime minister wanted to do the Atlantic Declaration that we agreed on 8th of June. It's to recognise that in the 21st century, the more immediate challenges are not the classic challenges uh, that we've seen in trade in the past, they're much more around economic security. That said, um, you know, the British government, uh, well, the British, the British Isles, the British uh, state is very much uh, free trade is in our DNA. You know, as a maritime nation historically, where we always think of ourselves as free traders. And I think I would agree with your premise that I see now uh, more protectionist tendencies uh, in the US uh, than I've seen uh, in previous times I've been here. But I would also add that the US is still a country uh, very much at the forefront of open societies and open markets. 
Ambassador, you have been in D.C. for a while now. Um, you, uh, I, I assume like most uh, U.K. ambassadors to the U.S., this is the um, peak of, uh, of, of your ambassadorial uh, career. You, before this, you, you, you were at the U.N., another uh, coveted in assignment for the, for the very best uh, in, the, in the ambassadors of the, of the U.K., um, you are well known in DC. You throw a lot of parties. You you entertain. Tell me about what you've learned about this city as a as an outsider since uh, since you've been here, uh, especially as someone who is as well connected as you and who who knows everyone in this town. What have, what have you learned about Washington so far? Uh, well, I'd really like you to, you to leave. And that's something that our that's something that our readers will no. definitely be interested in. <laughs> you need to explain that I work extremely hard and that parties are a tool uh, as opposed to an end uh, in themselves. But diplomacy... Well, that's what I want you to talk about. Exactly. Exactly. Diplomacy is a contact sport. Uh, in order to understand the people, the government, the parliament, uh, you obviously have to understand what makes them tick, what motivates them, where their interests lie. You don't have to agree uh, on interest, but you do have to understand where someone else is coming from. So, and and America is so diverse. And of course, you have the state versus the federal system, which we don't have in the UK. So understanding all those motivations and, and interests is a key part uh, of what I do, of, of, of what the embassy does. Um, turning to Washington specifically, I was first here 25 years ago, uh, when George Bush was still president, and then it was um, Bill Clinton. And then Washington was a town that only did politics. Um, politics was in the air. Uh, you go somewhere and people would rather talk about politics that happened 25 years earlier than they would like to talk about gardens or art or the Kennedy Center. Now, I think Washington is a much more metropolitan city, if I can put it like that. I think the development by the wharf is superb. Uh, that's a brilliant example of public-private partnership. I think the mayor's done an outstanding job uh, on that. Uh, we've got some English restaurants uh, opening down there, which is is fantastic. Oh, really? I, I you see the diversity uh, of of Washington life uh, down there. So I think I would say Washington has become. It's not become less of a political city. It's become less of a one-trick. City. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say the phrase we use is less of a one company town is, is what you're yeah. describing. Yes, that's good. Yes. Thank that's, you. that's interesting. So when people come over, they can talk a little bit more about art <laughs> and culture and not just uh, the appropriations bill going through exactly. Congress. Exactly. And I do think in keeping with that, uh, also what's happened at the Kennedy Center uh, has, has been magnificent. The quality uh, of art and culture coming out of there. Uh, and just, the, you know, the, the city looks after diplomats very well. I would like to put on record our gratitude uh, to the city for, for that. During COVID, they, they were an enormous help uh, to embassies. And it's that's not always an easy sell. So I wanted to say yeah. thank you. Well, what did, so tell us a little bit about what your job is in the run up to an important event like Biden's trip to the UK. Um, is it a series of cables back home explaining uh, what the Americans really want? Um, like, how do you prepare your government uh, for, for, for this trip? How do you leverage your deep knowledge of this city and relationships uh, and, and help prepare uh, your government for something like this? Uh, 
Well, of course, the president and prime minister know each other very well. They've seen each other some four times in as in as many months. So it's not yeah. the same as if it were the first meeting. We right. write a lot of pieces of paper for a first uh, meeting. Um, but the president and PM know each other well. And the PM knows America well. Uh, he's lived here. He's studied yeah. here. Um, so it's not like we're, we're starting um, from scratch. But yes, we always send a political and economic update. Uh, we try and make that as um, synthesize as many things uh, as we can. We try and have a rule uh, in the British uh, civil service and foreign service that we don't write very much. So you've got to really condense it down into something that is prioritized. Uh, is there like a word count limit? No, the, well, on some things there is, but we obviously all try and get around those, obviously. <laughs> Same. And then we spend a lot of time helping on the program and a lot of time agreeing with the White House uh, what the subject matter will be. Now, with something like the Atlantic Declaration, of course, a lot of the negotiation is done beforehand between right. teams. Sometimes the team comes out from London. Sometimes we do it here uh, in the embassy. And that's because the leaders don't have time uh, to start from scratch. And then they can concentrate uh, on landing uh, the agreements. So that that so the will final difficult, most difficult pieces are, are 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 just reserved for them, while everything else is sort of set in stone. Is that the general practice? It might not necessarily be the most difficult thing. Sometimes it might just be something where you need that political agreement. Uh, yeah. As officials, is is obviously much harder for us to get. But all diplomats from any country in the world will tell you that they want to do the negotiating and they don't want their ministers to do the negotiating. And the ministers will tell you that if only they could get rid of the officials and do the negotiating themselves, everything would be over much more quickly. Interesting. All right. To the extent that you can, you know, re reveal, I wonder what is something that, you know, being an ambassador, of course, uh, being a reporter in a foreign country, being a, a reporter in, in a place, you've always got your editors or your government back home who are relying on you to understand it. And they always have certain stereotypes about the place you're reporting from. What is something that um, you find, and I, you know, this doesn't have to be the prime minister himself, but just in general, the bureaucracy, a stereotype or something they think about Washington, the Biden administration, the president himself, that you often uh, know from your time here is wrong and that you have to explain and say, you know what, guys, uh, I'm here. It's a little different than that. Uh, here's why. Um, I think there are a number of things that might fall into that category. You usually have to explain it more than once. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, as, as you probably know from your own techniques, if you just say that's wrong, people very rarely yeah. believe you. You have to say, yes, you have a point, but. And so we tend to go about it like that. And that's no different, yeah. say, from, you know, any anybody else in similar uh, circumstances. I learned that as the feedback sandwich, something positive, <laughs> something negative, something positive. What I will say <laughs> is that I think very few Europeans, very few Europeans and people in the UK really internalize the fact that there's no draw in American sport. Uh, that to me, <laughs> quintessential about America. That's, uh, and I'm not so sure that, I mean, I, well, just look at American football versus soccer. Very, yeah. you have sudden death and we have penalty shootouts. It's yeah. very, very different approach to winning. 
What about an example from the world of the Biden administration, not from sport? What's a stereotype that folk that uh, the Europeans or folks in the UK have that you uh, have to have to explain is not quite right? Oh no, I think everyone's pretty um, pretty comfortable to be <laughs> to be honest. About maybe about American politics writ large, is there anything that you've learned since you've been here that you thought, huh, that's not the way I thought it was before I took this assignment? Um, that the debates in Washington, the things I thought about American politics are a little bit more nuanced or complicated. Anything like that that you've observed? Um, I'm trying to think, to be honest. So I came here, as I said, 25 years ago, and I think um, I think there was a lot that surprised me then um (laughs) that i was kind of expecting uh this time uh round um i'm very interested in what you can get bipartisan agreement on here and and what you can't um i think that's quite quite telling the um the debt ceiling work when um the president and the speaker work together that's all very very interesting and i think speaker mccarthy himself would say uh, that in some ways that recalls Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, which is also uh, very interesting. Um, sometimes we have to explain that there are three co-equal branches of U.S. government. <laughs> that also is not a model found in many other uh, countries. Um, and that Congress yeah. is in charge of a lot of things that other countries' parliaments are not in charge of, even though they have a say. Uh, and yes. sometimes that's a that's a description that that bears uh, that bears repeating. But we always that's, like it yeah. when we find um, bipartisanship, you know. And we always uh, and other other diplomats, other ambassadors here, I think, would say the same. Uh, we try to do what we can to create the circumstances in which we we can all you know move an issue forward. If you take say um, Ukraine war crimes accountability, that's yeah. some, one of the issues. Uh, on which uh, we, the French, the Germans, the Italians feel very strongly, the Dutch, uh, but also is bipartisan uh, in in Congress. So we we try and move that forward together. Um, China is another obviously bipartisan issue uh, here. Uh, support for the for Ukraine in the UK is very bipartisan. So we we look for those areas where we can maximize that as the best way to get something done. Um, I'm going to let you go. I have one final question. A lot of Americans still, to this day, idolize Winston Churchill. Um, he's a, a cult hero to, to, to many, um, both actual quotes from Churchill and a lot of fake quotes from <laughs> Churchill are still a regular part of uh, political political speeches in, in American political American public life. Is there any similar American figure that gets that kind of treatment from the Brits? Ooh. Um, well, I mean, there's enormous admiration for George Washington going back to a more difficult time in our really history. wow. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't have thought some of those early guys were no, they were <laughs> had constituencies. It's really interesting. Uh, enormous admiration. Uh, a Washington one, <laughs> um, and the Queen had something very interesting to say about that when she was in Philadelphia uh, on one of her last visits to the the U.S. about we. Um, we now had the same shared values as the Americans, uh, but she refers to uh, that little local difficulty in, in, in quite a good way uh, about we tried to hang on to something that could not be hung on to. And I, it's very well put, and we have it on our website if anyone 
uh, wants to to check it out. And Washington resigned his commission. If you think of that at that time in history, that was an amazing act. Uh, Absolutely, of yeah. Uh, so that I think a lot of people know about. Um, FDR is is much admired. Um, I think the leader, uh, other than the current president, that most Brits would remember most would probably be Ronald Reagan, uh, the yeah. trip to Moscow. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, at yeah. any stage there's enormous interest in whoever the American president of the day is. Ambassador, thank you so much for doing this, for making the time. I know you have a very busy day and busy week. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to see you. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Thanks to Joe Dobkin for the editing help this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.